your first full day on retreat. One day down, 41 to go. One day down, 89 to go. (laughs) Sometimes it's like that in our minds. And on these long retreats especially, we keep a calendar in our minds sometimes. So before I begin the talk proper, I just like to say, uh, express my great appreciation for the diversity of this group. And um, to say to you that my journey towards cultural humility began a few years ago. And much as with the mindfulness practice, the more we see in our mindfulness practice, the more we see that we don't know, the deeper we see that our understanding needs to deepen. In very much the same way I have seen, the more I understand, the more I see I don't understand. And so this lesson in cultural humility is one of learning for me. And just to um, express, I'm open to feedback. So if you're so moved, you're welcome to leave me a note. Tonight, I'd like to speak about mindfulness. Mindfulness being a key aspect of what we're doing here. And so I'd like to spend some time exploring this quality, what it means, how we use it, how we practice with it, how it's helpful for us. We all, I think, have a kind of intuitive sense of what mindfulness means, most of us having practiced mindfulness for quite a while here. We have a sense of what it means for us, and this quality in general evokes words like being present, being aware, perhaps witnessing, knowing what's happening while it's happening. That was my own working definition of mindfulness for quite a while. I see mindfulness as kind of a reflective capacity of our minds. It allows, it's a function in the mind that allows us or allows this mind-body system to be aware of itself. It reflects the processes that are happening in the body and mind, kind of like a mirror does. It's a perfectly ordinary process that happens in our minds. It's a capacity that our minds have, this self-reflective, this reflective capacity, this capacity to know what's happening in the present moment. It's, It's just a normal capacity of our minds. It functions. We know what's happening. But what we don't really recognize or pay attention to is the fact that it is a process in our minds. We're we're not really cognizant, at least before we meet 
this practice. We're not really cognizant of mindfulness as a quality. Most of us, I think, are not cognizant of, it, of mindfulness as a quality. Mindfulness happens to us. We become aware of something, and then we start thinking about it or planning about it or deciding what to do about it or thinking about what should happen next. We get our agendas going, our decision-making processes going. And so we don't typically, at least before we meet the process, the, the practice of mindfulness, we don't typically recognize something interesting has happened, that we've become aware of what's happening in the present moment. I think it really took the, uh, the brilliance of the Buddha to point out, you know, this quality is really interesting. It's special, and it will help us. But he didn't simply say, be aware. He actually encouraged us to be aware from a particular perspective. He encouraged us to be aware from a perspective that will support us in moving towards happiness, moving away from the way our mind gets caught in wanting things to be different, the way our minds get caught in wanting things to be reliable that aren't reliable, the way our minds construct identities and believe in them, the way we want things to be permanent. So the Buddha highlighted a particular way of paying attention that supports this understanding, supports a deepening of the understanding of how our minds get get caught. If you were to uh, see somebody on on the street that was angry and you went up to that person, just a random person on the street, and said, do you know that you're angry? They would probably say, yes, I know I'm angry. What do you think? Are you nuts? Of course I know I'm angry. And then if you were to say to that person, well, notice your anger. They say, well, I am noticing my anger. You know, I'm angry at this person or this thing or this situation. Telling somebody to notice their reactivity, to be aware of their reactivity, isn't quite enough. The Buddha is pointing to uh, an additional perspective, a shift of perspective, one that includes an exploration of what does it feel like to be angry from the inside? What is the experience of anger? in this example. What is the experience of being a human being? What is that like? And recognizing with discernment when 
for instance, in the situation around anger, discernment about when anger is connected to a situation that is perhaps unjust and needs some addressing, but addressing it from a heart filled with compassion rather than a heart filled with hate. And so the Buddha suggested these shifts of perspective. Look at experience in and of itself. See if we can act not out of reactivity, but out of kindness, compassion, love. So this points to the shift of perspective or a shift of perspective that the Buddha Dhamma offers us. One of my teachers, Saido Utejaniya, one of his kind of famous quotes, the title of one of his books, awareness alone is not enough. It takes wisdom joined with awareness to have mindfulness, be a capacity that frees our minds and helps us to understand our minds. So the Buddha actually recommended that we cultivate right mindfulness. And the definition of right mindfulness or wise mindfulness is often described as the cultivation of the four establishments of mindfulness. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this teaching. The four establishments of mindfulness being establish mindfulness on the body, establish mindfulness on feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, establish mindfulness of knowing mind states, and establish mindfulness understanding how experience either helps move us towards freedom or keeps us caught in the cycles of suffering. Understanding the patterns of our minds that lead towards freedom or towards suffering. These four foundations of mindfulness. And in this text, in the the Buddha's main instructions to us on how to practice mindfulness, there's a repeated phrase that he repeats for each of these four foundations. He says, one abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, free from desires and discontent for the world. One abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, free from desires and discontent for the world. And likewise for mind states and dhammas. So this phrase really encapsulates in a way what he means by right mindfulness. And so I'd like to look at this phrase, look at, essentially look at each word in this phrase and see if we can understand what is this perspective What is the perspective the Buddha is offering us with mindfulness? It's not simply awareness. It's not simply being aware. So the first word that I'd like to look at is abides. Abides. 
the encouragement is to abide contemplating. Just allow that word to land in your experience. How does it land for you? Abiding. The word abiding is translating um, the Pali word viharati, which is related to the term that is used in the Brahma Vihara practice, the, the term for Brahma Vihara, the divine abidings, the divine abodes. It literally means something like home or dwelling. Dwelling, contemplating, dwelling, abiding. To me, this it calls up or evokes qualities of rest, of being at home, of contentment, of receptivity. Abiding doesn't feel like a doing to me. Abiding. So to me, this points to the kind of possibility of the open, relaxed, receptive quality to our mindfulness practice that Carol was pointing to during some of the instructions this morning. (coughs) Abiding in mindfulness. Abiding. The next phrase is contemplating, and in this case we'll take one, contemplating the body as a body, or contemplating feelings as feelings, or contemplating mind states as mind states. It's kind of a funny phrase, funny framing for something. What does it mean to contemplate the body as a body? Different translations can help to perhaps evoke some of the meaning here. Tanisaro Bhikkhu translates it. Contemplating the body in and of itself. So this body as a body, contemplating body as a body, To me, this brings in the sense of contemplating, directing our attention to, and that's one of the, we step back for a moment to the word contemplating. Contemplating means to observe, to look at. So here, the Buddha is suggesting we kind of direct the attention, perhaps, It can be understood as directing the attention to the body. It also could be understood as receiving the experience of the body. I think uh, the, the translation allows for both understandings. So this term for contemplating is encouraging us to look at experience in a particular way. And in this case, look at experience, observe experience, Observe the body as a body. Observe the body in and of itself. So, to me, this points to observing, knowing, recognizing the body is simply a body. 
not me, not who I am, not any of the identities I may pick up. The commentary actually says something interesting about this phrase. It says that this repetition, contemplating the body and the body, contemplating feelings and feelings, mind states and mind states, it says this repetition indicates that we need to precisely determine the object of contemplation and isolate it from objects with which it might be confused. That's an interesting statement. What is it that the body might be confused with? Actually, we easily confuse our body with concepts. We confuse our body with self. So the encouragement here is to look at the body as a body, not through the lens of our ideas, our opinions, our agendas, or identities around the body. And likewise with the other foundations. The actual experience of body is sensation, vibration, pulsing, tingling, Hardness, heat, coolness, tightness, pressure, moisture, dryness. The actual sensation of body is just sensation. We conflate this experience with concept very easily, though. You can get maybe a little bit of a taste of this if you just right now allow your attention to rest in the experience of your hand. What is that experience? What is the experience in that part of the body? tingling, pulsing, moisture, pressure. Just feel into the texture of that experience. And now, look at your hand. Pick your hand up and look at it. Think about it as a hand what it does for you. It reaches for things, it picks things up. And now, what's your experience at this point of those sensations? For me, at least, there's a kind of a distancing from those sensations. Partly because we're thinking about the concept of hand. We're seeing it through the, the lens of a concept. This kind of thing happens to us all the time. We don't necessarily actually experience our body. We think about our body. 
Another aspect of this um, contemplating the body as a body, feelings as feelings, mind states as mind states, is that the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta actually are fairly non-interfering. The instructions on observing experience don't instruct us to do things with what we notice. They just say, notice it. Over and over again, these specific exercises in this text tell us just know things as they are. One knows this is a body. One knows this is pleasant. This is unpleasant. One knows this is greed. One knows this is the absence of greed. One knows joy has arisen. Not to do anything with it, but simply to know it. So the effect of this is really to encourage a non-interfering, non-reactive, non-judgmental awareness. This is a key to how mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness, supports us in freedom. So, coming into your experience, what is it, having explored those words a little bit, one abides contemplating the body as a body, or an alternative translation, one abides observing the body in and of itself. Not a lot of doing in there. And yet it is directing us to a particular way of being aware. The next word brings in some doing. The next word, one abides. Contemplating the body is a body ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful. So ardency. This word brings in the energy, the effort component. So we don't simply settle back and, oh, if awareness is there, great. If not, well, it'll come back sometime. This is encouraging us to actively engage, alert, diligent, Engaged, wholehearted. These are some words that people use to incline towards this quality. It encourages a commitment to the practice. We have to do the practice. Bhante pointed to this last night. Nobody can do it for us. This is the Buddha's encouragement. Do the practice. He told Ananda, practice now before it's too late. Be diligent. So it's really pointing to a balanced, 
yet sustained effort in our practice. It does have to be balanced. It does have to be not too tight or too loose. The analogy that the Buddha used around balanced effort is that of tuning a musical instrument. That if the string is too loose, it won't make beautiful music. If the string is too tight, it will snap. It's got to be just tuned just right. Just the right amount of tautness for the string to make beautiful music. So a balanced effort, not too tight and not too loose. This is an art of finding this. And I know that we'll talk about this balance as we go through the retreat. It's a, it's a huge topic. I could spend a whole talk just talking about this one word, this balanced, persistent effort. It's also encouraging continuity in our practice. This persistence, moment after moment after moment. Something I think that's interesting here is that we now have a kind of a balance or a... uh, hmm. got two different words here. We've got abiding and we've got ardent. Abiding has the sense of settling back and resting. I asked one class to tell me what this word evoked for them. And and somebody said, the dude abides. I didn't know what this referred to until it was explained to me. But (laughs) there's apparently this film, (laughs) The Big Lebowski. And uh, this is one of his... uh, Mantras, I guess, you know, the dude abides. Really a laid back kind of place. But we do have to engage as well. It's not just the dude abides. It's possible, this is kind of a koan for our practice, possible to abide and engage. What does that mean? This has been a very interesting exploration in my own practice. You know, they're not opposites. It's not either engage or abide. It's not either be uh, um, diligent or be relaxed. What does it mean to be relaxed and diligent? That's the balance point of our practice. We can settle back and see the mind receiving experience, kind of in the abiding mode, in a way. Settle back and receive experience. Carol was pointing to this this morning, just settling back and receiving sound. And yet, we can't just settle back. There, there needs to be that kind of meeting, meeting of experience. We can direct the attention. We can choose to pay attention, for instance, to the breath. Directing the attention. And then settling back and receiving. What is the experience of an in-breath? What is the experience of an out-breath? Abiding and diligent. Abiding with engagement. 
the next word is clearly comprehending. One abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, clearly comprehending. This, this word, sampajanya in the Pali, one of the more familiar places it's used is in the first foundation of mindfulness. There's a section called clear comprehension, and it refers to, in, the, in that exercise, to being engaged with knowing your activities throughout the day, continuity of awareness again continuity of mindfulness. In the Satipatthana Sutta, it encourages us to notice when we're walking, when we're standing, when we're sitting. It encourages us to notice when we're going some, going to and fro. It encourages us, us to notice when we're reaching and bending our limbs. It encourages us to know when we're urinating and defecating. It's in there. when we're eating, when we're talking, when we're remaining silent, all of our activities, it's encouraging us to cultivate mindfulness with. So again, pointing to this continuity in this word, clearly comprehending. This word also has some additional meanings. In the um, other places in the texts, it refers to There's another definition for clear comprehension that I particularly like. It says that one's clear comprehension is recognizing feelings, thoughts, perceptions are known as they arise, persist, and pass away. Feelings, thoughts, perceptions are known as they arise, persist, and pass away. That is one's clear comprehension. This is pointing to, to me, this is pointing to again this this wisdom piece. How do we want to be paying attention? What is it, and what is it that we want to be attuning to? Clear comprehension is encouraging us to attune to the process nature of experience. Not what the feelings are, but that they arise, persist, pass away. Not what the thoughts are, but that they arise, persist, and pass away. Noticing objects as objects. Noticing that experience appears, stays for a while, and vanishes. This is a perspective the Buddha is offering as important for our freedom. And this perspective encourages us again towards non-reactive awareness because we are simply recognizing what's arising in the moment. It's a feeling arising, persisting, passing away. If we, if we imagine or, or reflect on what that means, a feeling arises, persists, and passes away and is known to do that. Where is the room for reactivity? Where is the room for wishing it to be a different way. The commentaries also indicate that this word, clearly comprehending, includes noticing the purpose 
for which we are paying attention. Noticing the purpose for which we're doing something. And the purpose that the Buddha pointed to was freeing the heart from suffering. So again, this brings in wisdom. The wisdom of the Buddha is intimately connected to seeing suffering, seeing how it's connected to the impermanent, unreliable nature of experience. Seeing how our minds, oh, do our minds wish things were permanent. Oh, do they wish they were reliable. And seeing how that very wish wraps us right into our reactivity, our suffering, our struggling. So engaging with our experience in mindfulness, noticing what is it that hooks us? What is it that hooks us? We walk into the dining room. We see somebody putting food on their plate. How many times have I gotten hooked into that? How much food somebody is taking or how little food somebody is taking, comparing, judging, evaluating what I'm doing versus what somebody else is doing. It's just feelings as they arise, thoughts as they arise, persist and pass away. Sights arising, persisting, passing away. Can we know that? Exploring, understanding where it is that we struggle. Where do we get hooked? We will talk about this over and over and over again. This is just a overview here. The next word is mindful. Again, we talked about this, and we all have a kind of a sense of what mindfulness is. One of my colleagues, Gil Fransdahl, has been doing some study on this term, and he said, here he's been practicing for 35 years or something. I think that's about how long he's been practicing. He says, and I don't really know what mindfulness is kind of shocking to him in a way to to recognize that. In his study of this in, in the texts, one of the things that was remarkable to him was that the word mindfulness, as it's used, isn't used as something that we do. The words associated with mindfulness are words like abiding. We abide in mindfulness. We cultivate mindfulness. We establish mindfulness. So these words actually indicate that you know mindfulness may be a state of being rather than something that we do. Gil 
equates mindfulness as more of a kind of samadhi in a way. And like samadhi, we cultivate the conditions for mindfulness to become established. We don't do the mindfulness. We can recognize when mindfulness arises and know it is present. We can cultivate mindfulness by observing the body as a body. We can cultivate mindfulness by directing attention to particular experience. So the active side of mindfulness practice is observing, knowing, understanding, effort. These activities, knowing the body as a body, knowing feelings as they arise, knowing this is pleasant, knowing anger as it arises, knowing anger as it passes away, these activities help to establish mindfulness. Abiding in mindfulness. So what we engage with are these activities of observing, of knowing, of understanding. Knowing what arises. Directing the attention at times. The last phrase, free from desires and discontent for the world. This points to the development of concentration, of mental composure, of unification of mind. And the way it's framed, the, the wording of the, of the sentences, one abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, free from desires and discontent for the world. It sounds like it has to happen first. We have to be free from desires and discontent before we engage with this practice. Now that's not easy to do. I think most of us see right away. We are not free from desires and discontent when we sit down. We want, we want our pain to go away. We want our, our concentration to come back. We, we want the sitting to end sooner. We want the food to come sooner. We want different food. We want more of this, less of that, endlessly we want desires. We have desires and discontent. And so if it is the case that we have to be free of this before we engage, it's like, well, I might as well go home. Why bother? So we're probably not able to get there right away. Biko Analio, in exploring this text, points out that this, the way this word is in the Pali, the Pali for this word, it, it is translated as something like having removed or being free from desires and discontent. But he said the way that word is used, the way that, that verb is used, that tense of that verb is used, can be having completed something, but also can be having something happen simultaneously with. So we engage in the practice of mindfulness and simultaneous with that, we explore how to free our minds from desire and discontent. 
So again, this to me is another framing of the practice. We are not engaged in this practice in order to get something or get rid of something. This is another pointing to a perspective of our mindfulness practice. We're engaged to free ourselves from these desires and discontent. We may be able to set it aside at times, or we may, be, we may be able to set desires and discontent aside at times, or we may be able to recognize that a desire or discontent has arisen, frustration has arisen. We may be able to recognize, oh, this is frustration. The Satipatthana encourages us to do this. Greed has arisen. Anger has arisen. Confusion has arisen. When we can recognize it in that way, it's as if we kind of take a... uh, It may be that um, we, we, we are frustrated. And when we are frustrated, it's like we're looking at the world through frustrated lenses. I was doing walking meditation in the basement here at IMS some years ago, and I knew I was having aversion attack. This frequently happened to me while doing walking meditation, especially with a crowded room. And I was doing the walking meditation knowing that the aversion was there, and I turned around at the end of my walking path, and I looked down the walking path to the other end, and there were somebody's shoes sitting down there. And my mind exploded. Who put those shoes in there? You know, that, that it was just like, you know, this filter of aversion was so strong, it's like those innocent little shoes were the, the source of another aversion attack. So sometimes when we have these states in our mind, these, this reactive s- states in our mind, we're looking through those states as if we're looking through the filter of aversion or greed or confusion or anger or frustration or depression or loneliness, whatever it is. We may be looking through this filter. And yet it's possible to recognize, oh, Aversion is happening. And then it's as if, at least at times it can be as if, we're now kind of looking at that experience rather than looking through it. Kind of like taking the glasses off and looking at them rather than through them. So the the filter is no longer quite so potent in our minds. So this is how this setting aside begins. We don't necessarily, we're not necessarily able to be completely free in our minds of desire and discontent, but we can recognize desires arising in the mind with a balanced perspective, with non-judgmental, non-reactive awareness, knowing aversion is arising, desire is arising. So we bring this perspective of free from desire and discontent as best we can to the practice. And slowly, like in a in a deepening cycle, in a deepening spiral, 
we begin to understand more and more of what it means to be free of the more obvious levels of desire and discontent. And those levels fall away, and then we may feel, oh, things are good for a while. And then we start to see, oh, well, there's some subtler desires and discontent there. We deepen our understanding of what it means to be free from desire and discontent as we practice. So one abides contemplating the body as a body, feelings as feelings, mind states as mind states, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, free from desires and discontent for the world. This phrase brings together both the what and the how of our practice. What we are paying attention to. We bring our attention to aspects of body. Body as a body. Body in and of itself. We bring our attention to feelings. Feelings in and of themselves. Feelings as feelings. Feelings known as they arise, persist, pass away. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Mind states as mind states. Anger, aversion, non-greed, non-aversion, non-confusion, concentration, distraction, contraction. All the different states of mind. What we are paying attention to is the kind of body-mind processes happening. From this perspective of body as a body, body in and of itself, feelings in and of itself, clearly comprehending these are just phenomena, empty phenomena rolling on, as Munindra said to Joseph so many times. The what we are paying attention to and how we pay attention. Abiding, settled back, receiving, diligent, connecting, present, persistent, balanced effort, clearly comprehending, recognizing objects, experiences, just experience. With this perspective of recognizing we're not in this to get something or get rid of something, but to understand how does our mind create struggle, create suffering? How does our mind get confused about the unreliability of experience? Our mind gets confused about this and just endlessly tries to figure out some way to make things reliable. Endlessly tries to make things reliable. And we feel like it's our fault or it's something wrong with us when we can't figure out how to do it. It's not our fault. It's just the way it is. This is the truth. Wise mindfulness encourages us to open us to the truth of experience and not be confused, not be deluded about trying to create happiness based on things that are unreliable, passing away.
So with right mindfulness, with wise mindfulness, we begin to see our reactivity. We begin to see how our minds create the struggle. This non-judgmental, non-reactive awareness. We begin to see loneliness, confusion, depression arising in our experience. We begin to understand how it's put together. Pretty early in my practice, I had a really beautiful example of this, of just how powerful wise mindfulness was. I was... I was in the Peace Corps at the time and had a relationship that had broken up, a 10-year relationship. So it was a pretty devastating experience, actually. Um, And um, I was, this is actually the experience that brought me to practice. The the anger that was happening, the loneliness, the confusion, I was out of control. The mind was out of control. And I saw, wow, this is out of control. I can barely function here. And so I just began, somebody sent me a book on mindfulness, and I just began trying to pay attention to this confused mind. And I was noticing that I was going to bed lonely every night. This was, okay, this is something that's happening. It's like, let's notice loneliness. It didn't particularly surprise me that I was lonely when I was going to bed at night. But I was interested. I had begun to be interested in my mind. I'd begun to be interested in how does this mind do what it does? So I started observing this loneliness every night as I went to bed. One night, some number of nights into this process of observing this loneliness as I went to bed, I noticed that the loneliness clearly began when I set my alarm clock. Now this struck me as very odd. I could not figure out why on earth setting my alarm clock would have anything to do with loneliness. I just kept noticing, just noticed. Some nights later, I don't even remember whether it was the next night or a couple nights later, I think I had noticed that there was a pattern around the loneliness now that I recognized. It was clearly connected to this alarm clock somehow. And one night, as I was, again, just observing, you know, I actually had very little instruction in mindfulness practice at this point. There was, it was just curiosity. What is this about? What is it like to be lonely? And one night, as I was setting my alarm clock, I noticed a memory. I was with my partner in this memory. I was with my partner in Disneyland, looking up at a clock on a marquee in Tomorrowland. And I could see that there was a connection between the setting, the alarm clock, the image of the clock here, and the clock in my memory. And I could also in that moment recognize that the loneliness was something along the lines of a reaction to that memory. Oh, that was so happy. I'll never be happy again. I'm always going to be miserable. I'll never have another partner. I'm always going to be alone again. That that was where the loneliness had arisen from. I was kind of amazed, actually. This was, you know, some, I don't know, four months into my meditation practice. Amazed that mindfulness could reveal the source, the, the, what, how it was constructed, how this loneliness was created in my mind. So that was pretty amazing to see that. But what was more amazing was the next night when I went to bed, 
I looked at that alarm clock. I, of course, remembered the memory because it had become conscious in my mind. But the loneliness did not happen. It was as if having seen the hook between the memory and the reactivity had decoupled the reactivity. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't get lonely again. Not saying that. But that every night going to bed lonely, that stopped. Very powerful recognition of how this practice of noticing what's happening in the mind and body brings freedom. Many, many, many kinds of experiences like that. You've had your own experiences like that. So right mindfulness begins to create the conditions for insight. The conditions to actually see into how suffering is created, struggle is created in our minds. And gives us the choice then, another potent aspect of this wise mindfulness, especially as it gets more continuous. The more continuous the mindfulness gets, the more we see choice points, the more we begin to see a point of being able to choose act or not act on this particular mind state. So we begin to be able to choose that act on compassion, act out of compassion, out of love, rather than out of anger and hostility and hatred. We begin to be able to choose that. So we begin to be able to respond skillfully rather than react out of habitual patterns. Continuity is the key here. It is what brings the power to our mindfulness practice. Mindfulness is a factor of awakening. Seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness being the first factor of awakening. The ground out of which the factors of awakenings grow. In order to become a factor of awakening, Mindfulness needs to be continuous. We need to have that sense of abiding in mindfulness, dwelling in mindfulness, dwelling in mindfulness with that perspective of not wanting something to happen or wanting something to not happen being free from desire and discontent. Bringing this perspective, what my teacher Sayadaw Utejaniya calls this wise attitude, skillful attitude for our practice. When we have wise attitude, it doesn't matter what we're paying attention to. It doesn't matter whether anger is arising or bliss is arising. I can't tell you the number of times that deep insight 
has arisen when I finally was willing to kind of go, oh yeah, self-hatred, yep, that's what's happening. And not fight it or try to sidestep it or try to pretend it wasn't there, but really decided, yes, self-hatred, here you are, I'm going to look at you. That willingness to meet our difficulties opens us to insight. When difficulty is happening, that is our path. When bliss is happening, that is our path. (laughs) Knowing bliss is happening, not indulging in bliss. So we join this power of mindfulness with the continuity, and it becomes concentration. Mindfulness and concentration together are what allow us to deepen into happiness, understanding, wisdom, and the wisdom is what frees us. The wisdom is what opens our hearts frees our minds, takes us towards happiness. So let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.